This is Inconstant. Hello everyone, it's uh, Fahed. Uh, this is another episode of Inconstant. I'm talking to Jeffrey Saltner about Andrei Tarkovsky's uh, sci-fi film Stalker. There are a few audio, audio issues in this episode. I uh, apologise for that. Um, we'll try and sort those out in future episodes. Um, hope you enjoy the chat. Thanks. Bye. Okay, hello everyone. This is a episode of Inconstant. We're continuing our series of episodes talking about films. Um, today, my guest is Jeffrey Saltner. Jeffrey's a BJJ brown belt and filmmaker. He's originally from Canada. He's lived in London since 2003. Uh, he worked in the uh, operations uh, charity for about 15 years. Um, Jeffrey's pursued BJJ and filmmaking as a passion, uh, eventually leaving the office environment to pursue um, BJJ full-time in 2018. I'll include a link to uh, Jeffrey's um, filmmaking stuff in the description for the episode. Um, Jeffrey enjoys uh, his films typically to be in short, Jeffrey uh, films uh, typically feature non-narrative storytelling in the framework of art and experimental filmmaking. Okay, uh, Jeffrey, do you want to say hello to everyone? My listeners, yeah, hi. Five of them. <laughs> hi, yeah. Really, uh, I'm very grateful that that you've offered me this opportunity. I I take every opportunity I can to talk about films. It's one of my favorite subjects. Uh, so it's, this is, uh, yeah, really good. Yeah, so the film that we are going to be talking about today today is Andrei Tarkovsky's uh, Stalker. It's a Russian language film uh, that's been described as a, a sci-fi movie. I'm not too sure if I agree with that mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> description, but yeah. um, we'll we'll get into that um, later. So. Um, this is an in joke between me and one of my friends, so this is a question I'm going to be asking a lot of my de- all my guests from here on in. Um, what is your favourite episode of Time Team? Um, sorry, what is my favourite episode of <laughs> Time Team? Your favourite episode of Time Team? This is a joke I, only I people are going to get. I don't. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Sorry, I don't know what time team. Okay, is. that's that, that's that's absolutely. Fine. Is it a? Is it a? Is it a fiction TV show? No, is it a reality it's, TV? It's, it? it's it's a um, British archaeological uh, TV show where a, a group of um, archaeologists go into the British countryside and, and dig up, <laughs> um, dig up uh, a piece of the land to find bits of pieces of pottery and that sort of thing i do know i do um, know the show but i've never seen it so i'm sorry I yes can't okay. have an opinion on it that is that's a joke for um exactly three people oh uh, yeah that's fine. <laughs> okay so um let's get into the um get into the movie so um when was the first time you saw the film oh it's a good question uh it would have been maybe either late teens or early twenties. Um, you know, say around the age of twenty is when I first saw it. And did you go to see it in the cinema, or was it a VHS rental? Kind of how did how did the sort of, how do you remember how it came into kind of like your? Um, I I like how 
I like how you know how old I am by yeah. the fact that you said that if I saw it when I was 20, it was either a VHS <laughs> rental or it was in the cinema. It was yes. it was a VHS. It was definitely a, at home. I watched it at home. Okay. And um, when was the last time you saw the film? Oh, like yesterday. I watched it again. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it was my first time. I hadn't. Uh, I've, I've come across the name Tarkovsky because mm. I've heard about the movie Solaris. I've not seen any of his other movies apart um, from this. Uh, so, you know, the other obvious question I'll kind of uh, want to ask is why did you kind of choose this movie to discuss on the on the podcast? Mm. It's it, You know, I had thought about a couple of movies to choose from, but I chose this one because uh, it is a science fiction movie. And despite what you say, it is a science fiction movie. Yeah. But yeah. I think also because it deals with a lot of themes that are resonant in when, in, with what we're dealing with right now, uh, you know, in, in the modern world, in the post-COVID, in the mid-COVID world, uh, there are some themes that are resonant. Uh, in this movie, that's that's really why I chose it. Chose it. I thought I might ch uh, choose something that was a little bit more, that was a little bit less difficult, something perhaps that was more entertaining. But in the end, this is one of my favorite movies, and and I know you are a movie buff, uh, Fed. You're you're definitely somebody who has got a lot of language and uh, to be able to deal with movies. And I knew that it would be more rewarding for the both of us if we discussed something that was. A challenging film rather than something a little easier yeah so um that's absolutely correct i did find it a kind of challenging watch so i i kind of watched this in three batches um so i watched it for i think kind of like in half an hour 45 minute slots um it's it's a movie that so for those of you who aren't aware kind of about the, the language of filmmaking um Next time you go to watch a movie, see, you know, clap your hands every time they change a shot. Mm -hmm. And you'll find yourself clapping your hands quite often. That's not really the case with um, Stalker. They hold, the camera holds on whatever it's filming for a very, very long time. And that can be, as a viewer, if you're not used to that sort of pace of um, shot selection and shot holding, quite and i think it probably says something about the movies that i've been kind of watching recently that i found it quite difficult to to hold my attention and i was just kind of like and there's a lot of shots in the movie that are quite um anxiety filling i think is mm -hmm. kind of the the word and it just got all right i need to i need to take a break from this and kind of reset and then come back at it, at it mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. again so um i don't know what you think about what you think about that uh, you're 100% right. Uh, you know, even uh, somebody like me who, who I, I absolutely adore movies like Stalker that are slow paced, like each each scene, each shot will take sometimes well over a minute. And in fact, I think it's it, I think it averages out uh, for the whole movie to be each shot being just about a minute long, which is an um, eternity in filmmaking, uh, in the context of filmmaking, where in in modern filmmaking and filmmaking especially uh, there can be literally more than 60 shots in a in a minute because of uh, you yeah. know quick shots and especially if it's an action movie or something like that so um 
And so even me, a person who loves this type of movie, I get that kind of itchy hand feeling where if you're, you're, we're watching these very long edits. And when I say itchy hand, what I mean is like you want to reach and grab something. You want to grab your phone or you want to, you know, like look at something else on your computer, open a new tab on a browser. And, and, but, but you have to resist that. And I think this movie really rewards you when you resist it because it, it forces you to really consider what is being said, what is being shown so much so that, that I think once you do abandon that itchy hand feeling you can start to really dig deep into the images that you're seeing. And, and, and it does cause anxiety. You're 100% right. In the same sense that if you're having a conversation with another person and they're looking at you and they're staring at you, that causes you anxiety. You're wondering, why am I, you know, what is this person doing? Why are they staring at me? Is there something on my face? Am I, you know, and, and I yeah. think, this look, this movie looks at you. It gazes at you, and and it's uncomfortable. And there's a even though there's no blood in the movie. Well, there's no real blood in the movie. There's no violence to speak of. Uh, it, it and yet it feels like more of an anxiety-producing film than almost all horror movies I've ever watched. And uh, so yeah, totally, totally take what what you're saying. You're one one hundred percent right. I agree with it. So um, do you want to? kind of walk the listeners through the basic of what Walker is about. Please kind of sure. describe what the, the stream is and kind of what happens. Yeah. yeah spoilers um, here and out, guys. Spoilers here and out. So you know, I, I don't know that I want to give I, – I, definitely I'll describe to you what the movie is about, um, but I don't want to say too much about the characters because I do want your listeners to watch the movie. And I think that – when it comes down to it, this is an examination of character uh, and, and of people. Um, and so I don't want to give too much away on what I think about the people, but I will set the stage. And so uh, here's the story in a nutshell. It's, uh, you know, it's never expressly said where it is, but one can assume it's in uh, like a sort of Soviet state, not not in the Soviet Union themselves itself, but in one of the sort of satellite states where there is a, a definitely what you could say a police state. Um, and uh, in the recent past, a, a meteor, it, or it is said that a meteor has struck the Earth and left in its place something called the zone. And the zone is an area that has been, you know, uh, cordoned off by the state. And no, nobody is allowed to interrupt. Not that there's anybody in there anyway. But definitely nobody's allowed in. And um, in the zone, it is said there is some a place called the room. And the room is an area that will grant your innermost desire if you visit it. Visiting it is very difficult, uh, perilous, and lots of people try and fail and never come back. Um, but in particular, there is one character. And, uh, and actually, another interesting bit here is that none of the characters in the movie have names. They all are addressed only by their archetype. Uh, you know, so there's the, the writer. Uh, there is the, uh, the scientist, the professor, they call him. And then importantly, the, the, the named uh, lead character, the stalker. And the stalker is, has a, a particular power to be able to bring people to the room um, by virtue of his 
some kind of an inner inner power that allows them to avoid the traps and the and the various bits along the way that would kill or or disappear people who are searching for them. Uh, that's it, and it, it's three hours of this. You know that that's three hours of of three people uh, searching for the room in order to achieve ostensibly their innermost desire. <clears throat> so, the the quite a new of um and you only describe as a piss filled filter to color the it's kind of like it looks like urine yeah it's sepia. To me, the way they kind of like colored sepia kind of like a very um uh strange choice to kind of use as a filter mm. and kind of um when they enter the zone then it comes um uh, colorful kind of like the difference between um the wizard of oz where uh dorothy's in you know the real world as opposed to when she's in oz and it comes this beautiful vibrant um rather uh sort of like vibrant um world so i was just wondering why you maker chose to do that and what you think that says about the value between the world that they're actually to the so-called real world as to the kind of value that the characters ascribe to the uh, to the zone yeah yeah it's a good question and an interesting directorial choice um you know, tarkovsky is definitely a filmmaker's filmmaker what i mean by that is he, he spends a lot of time thinking about the way the the, the film looks and uh what is portrayed on the screen and what it says about the the people making the movie. Now, I can't uh, I can't know exactly what Tarkovsky was thinking about this, but I can say that um, sepia is uh, traditionally a, a much more like a, an older. Uh, it gives the quality of the film looking older. Um, sepia, you know, if a sepia tint on a photograph will make it look like an almost like an oldie oldie timey, like an old west kind of thing right um and that transition from sepia tint to color i i mean i take it my opinion is that um it shows that the the people involved and especially the stalker is only ever really feeling alive when they are in the process of searching out something difficult so while they're being challenged, the challenge in this case for it being finding the room in the zone, which is very difficult, it is those it are those moments that in which they are feeling the most alive, and and everything else uh, is just that kind of sepia tint, that that not quite vibrant, uh, dull uh, existence, and and I think it goes a long way to talk about, uh, you know. You and I both do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. That's how we know each other. And it's a very difficult endeavor. It's full of uh, injury and, and difficulties. You Sometimes you might be doing it for like a week or a month, and you're just you're not doing it well. You're struggling. It's difficult. But in the end, without that struggle, the rest of your life would be a bit boring. It would be sepia. 
Um, I think that's why he chose it to, to be that way. I don't know that there's anything more complicated than that. But it does, uh, you know, it is an interesting question. What, why do you think he chose that? What's your opinion on it? I, I think there's a couple of there's a couple of reasons I think he chose that. I think the first reason is to do with kind of the the internal struggle that the the stalker character is kind of going through. You know, his life outside the zone to be poverty stricken. Um, you know, his uh, you know where he's living. He's got one bed that he has to share with his wife and his uh, child. They don't have any furniture, so it kind of to kind of emphasise that you know where the stalker is at the moment is quite a difficult place. And then when you hit the the colour of of the zone, that you know one of the first things he does is kind of like hug the ground and kind mm-hmm. of embrace sort of like the the, the you know. I think that you know, there's a question about whether it's you know, an Australian sort of way, an environmental film. Kind of like a lot of the sepia scenes are in industrialized areas, and mm-hmm. almost all the color scenes are in more fields or where it's you know, nature's reclaimed um, the land or, or or the buildings. Maybe there's something about that in there mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. No, it's a very good point. And actually, this is something I completely hadn't thought of, but you've pointed it out. The stalker spends a lot of the movie lying down or embracing the earth in, in some fashion. Yeah. In fact, there, there are whole sections of the film where he is talking and lying down in the middle of a river or, or face, like face down on, on some land. Um, and it's almost like he's going over with that desire to connect with the physical nature of the world. Um, it's a very good point. It, I think it's especially interesting because the film is very richly endowed with uh, beautiful scenery. It's not really beautiful, actually, but but interesting, rich scenery. Yeah. And yet, and yet, fundamentally, the 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 theme of the uh, of the picture is about an internal struggle, the internal struggles of the characters. The whole thing is an examination of each character's internal struggle with the idea of achieving their innermost desire and it's delivered to you the vehicle in which it's delivered to you is this richly you know this rich tapestry of of images of being outside and the verdant green and the dilapidated buildings and destroyed tanks and and all of this uh and so there's such a strange relationship with there with choosing to film very interesting rich locations but having the theme of the film be fundamentally about the the internal struggle of each character. You know, yeah. So, um, so I, I, it's kind of like a side point. I recently um, recorded another podcast with uh, with someone, and we were reviewing this book called um, Spring Time in Chanel, and. It's funny that I've kind of I've seen or I'm I'm talking about two pieces of art where um obviously you know Chernobyl huge nuclear accident and has created a zone where people can't inhabit and um essentially what the 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 artists went there for uh, in in springtime in Chernobyl the the artists went there to create a piece of art that um kind of exposed 
the the poverty and the the struggle of the people that live in that who still live in the the exclusion zone mm. and what he end, ended up coming away with was an appreciation of the the beauty of the area so this you know it's a dangerous place Chernobyl's kind of you know radiation levels and if you step it out you know there, there's certain spots that are safe and then the spot next that's dangerous and it's kind of it reminded me a lot of what was um happening in stalker there'll be you know he, he he does this thing where he throws a nut to make sure that the area is safe and there's that some areas are going to be dangerous and there's some spots that are going to be um mm -hmm. safe so I'm, I'm just wondering obviously you know Tarkovsky's uh, a russian filmmaker if that experience of what was happening in Chernobyl um affected some of the decisions that he he made in regards to you know nature reclaiming land that had been kind of either bespoiled by either man or an outside alien force mm. Mm. yeah it's so what Chernobyl was what 1986 um and I'm, yeah. I'm uh, certain that almost certain that uh that it was made before that stalker was made before oh, that. Okay. I have that here so I can tell you right now when it was made if you bear with me 79 yeah so okay. we're talking like uh you know around six years before Chernobyl um so but you're 100% you're right there is it, it is it feels like he's talking about Chernobyl in fact, you could almost be forgiven for thinking it's a movie about Chernobyl in that way. Um, I really like the fact that this process that the stalker goes through, which appears on the surface to have some kind of internal logic to the stalker of taking this like a, a, like a nut from a nut and bolt and tying a, a piece of fabric to it and then throwing it and examining the throw and then walking towards it to see if it's safe. It's a it's a ritual that he does to find the safe path um, to the room, and yet it's never really explained why he does it. Why why does he do it? it, it what is the logic behind it? Is is there? There's no uh, there's no discussion on even if it works. Does it work? Is it really unsafe? You don't really know. There's only one moment in the movie where one of the characters, not the stalker, I think it's the writer, decides he's just he sees the room in the distance. And they've been walking for a while and he's just, he's going, he says, I'm just going to walk up to the room. And the stalker says, don't do that. It's dangerous. If you walk straight towards the room, you, you will die. And the writer says, oh, you know, this is silly. I'm just going to do it. And he starts walking towards the room. And then all of a sudden he just stops and he turns, you know, he's maybe gone about a hundred meters and he stops and he, he turns around and he looks back at the two others who are standing there watching him go. And then he, he turns around and he walks back and he says, well, why did you call me back? The writer says to the stalker and to the professor. And the stalker says, I didn't say anything to you. I didn't tell you to come back. And so it's never expressly said, but there's some with this kind of ritualistic nut throwing and the, and the, the fact that they're following him and they just believe that he says that, you know, I know the safe way through. There's a real almost of a quasi spiritual element to this that yeah. – it's there's a um, and and beyond the fact there's a lot of Christian imagery in this you know uh, that's it's it's Christian but it's also not um, you know there's a I think there's this undercurrent of uh, mysticism in the film that you you kind of have to accept and and once you accept it you accept the internal logic of the film being consistent which it really is it it treats itself as a very consistent film even though. For us, the watcher, it looks very illogical. Um, 
And, and I think, so in a way, I guess what the filmmaker is saying is in a, in a, if there is a place where the laws of physics, the laws of, of reality as we know it are suspended, which Chernobyl kind of is to an extent, right? Like if you were to walk into the zone, in the, the exclusion zone in Chernobyl, you would notice that if everything's overgrown, that definitely looks strange, but you, you, wouldn't, you, you wouldn't feel the danger, right? You would see that yeah. things are overgrown and you would see the rusted cars and everything, but you don't, you don't have a sense of the danger. People tell you that there is radioactive material everywhere. They tell you that it's dangerous if you were to do this or do that. You have a Geiger counter, which is reading high radiation levels in some areas and not others. But you don't have a sense of it. Your eyes, your smell, your all of these, you can't sense the danger. And so in a way, you have to trust the Geiger counter. You have to trust the scientists who are saying it's dangerous and saying, go here and don't go there. And for those of us who are not necessarily scientists, it's almost a mystic belief. You almost have to suspend your sensory logic in order to accept their interpretation of what's going on. And I think Stalker does that quite well. Yeah, so that's uh, actually quite nicely into the next um, thing that I wanted to talk about. So um, trust, I think, is a big theme. Trust, belief is a big theme throughout the movie. Yeah. I found it quite interesting. So if I looked at, at the stalker, this is not a man that I would put massive amounts of faith or trust <laughs> into. He doesn't seem to be all that well put together. Um, kind of, he seems nervous. He doesn't seem that confident. Um, and he talks about the dangers that the party face without explicitly describing what might happen so he doesn't say specifically that these people might die he just says something bad will happen so we don't know if it's death or some other terrible thing that will happen yeah. to them so i was just wondering you know what you kind of felt about you know that idea of you know putting your trust in in someone in these sort of circumstances right you know what the it, filmmaker was talking about there I really like that. It's true. And I think, uh, so again, I don't want to, I would, I don't want to ruin the film by saying too much about the characters themselves, but I'll say this, that, uh, each of the three characters is going into the zone for their own reasons. Okay. And it comes clear at the end, what those reasons are, but for the stalker, he doesn't want to go to the room, despite the fact that the room is the, the place where your innermost desire becomes a reality. He doesn't want to go there. His, his impetus behind going into the zone and going towards the room is because he has a, he almost feels like an internal obligation to be the stalker, to be the person that brings other people to the room. He doesn't, it's almost like he doesn't want to do it himself. He just feels he has to. And so you look at this man who, like you say, the stalker is a, He's, he's not a healthy-looking person. He's not well-dressed. He, he doesn't have the bearing or the attitude of a person you would want to trust in a life-or-death situation. And yet, he's because he's compelled to take people, people to this room in the zone, you have to trust him because nobody else can get you there. Um, uh, it's just uh, that idea that you have an internal motivation to, to do something, not because you want to do it yourself, but because you want to help other people achieve something. And it's very interesting. I, 
Mm-hmm. I thought a lot about the relationship that the three characters have with each other. And, and I'd, I'll say that, in my opinion, again, this is my opinion, I think that they are archetypes, right? So an archetype is something that is a, it's a, an archetype of a person that, you know, people can be kind of um, divided into different types. And so some of those types might be intellectual or explorer or soldier or et cetera, et cetera. And explorer is a big one. And in fact, all three of these are explorers of a, of a set in a sense, right? So you have the, the philosoph the philosophical or intellectual explorer is the professor. You have the, the artistic, the literary explorer being the writer. And then you have the stalker who on the surface of it is the explorer the, of the physical world in the, the very, in the literal sense, the person who explores, except he doesn't explore. He is not an explorer. He has He's, he's the opposite of an explorer. There's all of this vast wilderness for him to be able to see, but he chooses a specific path through it that he deems is safe. He's not interested in seeing what's in that building or what's over here or what's there. He's only interested in taking the person from the edge of the zone to the room and back again. And that's it. Um, so, uh, yeah. I don't know. That's it. I, I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah. So you've, it's quite interesting. You've got, um, I've got a sense that you've got a far more virtuous view of what the stalker's motivation is mm. in going to design than I do. I, I mean, I've only seen the film once. Um, my view of the stalker was that he was almost, um, it's almost like he's a, a drug addict, mm-hmm. kind of like he needs to go to design to get his fix. Yeah. Um, then kind of after he, you know, he, you know, the, the sense of relief, when he first gets there, he lies on the ground. It's for me kind of reminded me of imagery you see in films of, you know, someone taking that first, you know, getting that hit of heroin after they've mm-hmm. been kind of like, they've been jo- jonesing for a while. That's kind of the sense that I got from it. Um, mm-hmm. So I think his motivations are a little bit more selfish. You know, I think kind of he would be there, like I don't think he'd be able to visit there without people kind of coming to give him the money to for him to take him there. But it's kind of the altruistic aspect of what he's doing, if there's such a thing, is a byproduct of his desire to actually just be in the zone rather than right. mo- main motivation to be there. I think you're right. Yeah, I agree with that 100. Yeah. percent He exhibits yeah. all of the behaviors of a person who is almost addicted like you say like he he the rest of his life is that boring sepia tone and the only time he ever really feels alive is when he's in the zone and uh i think you're right that's that's probably a, a fair assessment yeah so um one of the things I, you know, I was a little bit worried about when i when i first started watching the movie i thought that this was going to turn into one of those um best of the worst classic uh sci-fi movies of men just walking around in a wood with not much happening, which it sort of is, but it kind of like isn't as well. Kind of um, obviously the the the, you know, the the cinematography and the dialogue is far better than any of the films that would be featured in um, Best of Worst. Uh, the um, no microphones are visible, I believe, in the <laughs> anywhere in the film. But um, I was just um, you know I I kind of questioned whether it was um. A sci-fi movie i'd actually say this is more of splitting hairs i think it's more of a, a fantasy film than a sci-fi film as i don't know 
why i mean there's kind of sci-fi elements in there but um it's just it's just interesting i I found it interesting that you know people classified it as a sci-fi film when the only real sci-fi element to it is maybe it's modern setting and the apparent um the apparent kind of meteorite uh Mm -hmm falling down because we don't actually know if the meteorite fell down or if it might be a supernatural occurrence so i don't so i don't know if you've got any kind of um thoughts regarding that yeah so uh totally i take where you're coming from let me say it like this uh i think uh, i'm a huge fan of the soviet aesthetic when it comes to making movies like tarkovsky being an example where uh if we take it in comparison to the American aesthetic of making a sci-fi movie, in American sci- science fiction, it's filled with aliens in rubber costumes, face masks, and and ships blowing up, and laser pistols, and you know all of these things. It's 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 draped in the uh, in the sort of post-edit, uh, as you know, uh, computer graphics, and and all of these types of things, and and when what if you if what you are used to in the world of science fiction is Star Wars or Star Trek or you know uh, two thousand and one yeah sure any of these large budget uh, space dramas then this stalker will appear to you to not be science fiction um, I'll say that to me the the reason why it is the, the epitome of science fiction is it uses science as a uh, as a, a, a springboard towards examining the human condition. That, to me, is science okay. fiction. That, that's, that's what that is. And, and it, this is science fiction because it deals with the idea of like some kind of a extra ter- perhaps extraterrestrial event which causes uh, a, a massive change in the way people live their lives. And not only that, but it presents them with an opportunity to achieve something that would not normally ever be achievable. Um, granted, it's the only reason why we can think of that it might be a meteor is there's a little bit of text at the beginning of the film that says, you know, a meteor landed on the, on the earth. That's all we have to suggest that it's a meteor. You're right. It might be something else. Um, but whatever it is, it is, uh, it is, if you like, scientific in nature. It's not just simply... Uh, a drama where two people might have a you know a, a conflict with each other. It is something external. It's a it's an external um, influence upon our lives that makes that change. Um, I, but I, I take your point. I think so. The Soviets, uh, to me, make wonderful pictures with this type of thing. Uh, Solaris is one of Tarkovsky's other famous films, and in Solaris, the main character visits a planet. Which, in a similar kind of way, it's like it's a planet that's also an organism, and that planet, in a similar kind of way to this, it it gives you what you want, um, but it doesn't necessarily always give you what you you think you want, only what you really want down deep. Um, and so uh, that, that one is a little bit more sort of space opery in the sense that he's on a spaceship, and you can tell he's on a spaceship, and there's a planet there, and all of that. But this is, to me, it's it's like the perfect science fiction movie because the science doesn't get in the way of the movie. It's not about the rubber face masks of the aliens and, and all of those things. It's really about just the, the idea of science and how it changes people, the concepts that science introduces into our lives and how that changes people. 
Um, yeah. So, I, but I take your point. It's not this yeah. film is not for everybody. By the way, there are lots of people who don't like it, and and I can understand why you wouldn't like this yeah. movie. But yeah, I'm not too sure if I did like it or not. I'm I'm thinking about it a lot, and I'm not too sure if I've got the energy to watch it again. It's um, I just felt anxious all the way. So I kind of I don't want to say it was an unpleasant viewing, but um. <laughs> I felt anxious all the way through. So yeah, I I just, um, and one of the one of the main things that actually made me feel anxious. So I downloaded, well, I didn't download it. I streamed it from a website called um, what was the website called? Um, UKChili.com, and they've got a um, standard definition um, stream of film. So I don't know if the sound editing on this. Um, some of it, I think, was a deliberate design. Some of it, I think, I, I'm not too sure if it was just down to the print that they were streaming. There was a lot of like um, ambient crackling sound that, in a normal film, that would be kind of like you try and um, take that out. Mm. Um, so when the the film's first uh, opens up, I got a lot of no. So okay, I don't that's know. Yeah. To be. No, that's not supposed yeah. to be. I yeah. watched I watched the so, DVD and and. Grab the sound designs a lot of foley. It's there, there's yeah. no, you can tell the whole film is definitely foley. There's no in yeah. situ whatsoever. Um, but it's uh, the sound designs I thought was quite good. Uh, it lends a lot of etherealness to the movie, but yeah. I don't think there's meant to be any kind of sort of back, background hiss. So maybe that is the rip that you want. Yeah. So I just um, maybe it was just yeah the the. Um... The stream. I mean, the thing is, I paid 90p to watch it, so I was assuming mm-hmm. that I was going to be getting, um, a, a, you know, a copy that had good sound, um, sound on it. It was just, I almost switched it off because it's like this is, mm. this is not like good, good sound editing. So um, mm. yeah, it was, but the sound does um play a a big part in the in the movie. Mm-hmm. as well kind of you know people think think of cinema as just as a visual medium which it definitely is but mm-hmm. you know if the sound isn't great it can really you know it can really badly affect the um experience that you have with the, with the film and I, as you mentioned most most of the well the the film's entirely um foley and that's the other thing that i kind of noticed sometimes when you do entirely foley um a film sometimes when you're doing the dialogue the it doesn't quite match up sometimes mm-hmm. so that's the again that's the experience i had with mm-hmm. the with the film so you uh, uh, you say the blu-ray or dvd the film didn't have any of those uh same issues not that i noticed uh, i mean i watched the okay. dvd and it seemed to me there, i didn't at least notice any popping or hissing you you may have okay. well have, have watched a rip of a like a 35 millimeter version of it that might be old and sometimes the the audio track yeah, maybe. gets scratched and you get a lot more sort of hissing and things like that. So, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, I mean, it, it, it was a bit odd because when the, when the dialogue or the music came in, it was absolutely, it was just during, you know, the, you know, this film's got um, long moments of silence when that kind of sound kind of came in. So yeah. I don't know if it's supposed, it was supposed to be silent or whether like the filmmaker made the choice of having a mm. sound in there. So yeah, so that's um mm. that was another reason why I needed to kind of watch it in 
like free, you know, free, free kind of batches because like the sound was just getting on my nerves a lot. It was just like really, really annoying. It's also three hours long. I mean, that's a pretty long movie. It's, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I mean, I've got you know, as I've gotten older, um, if a movie's over three hour long, it need better be a bloody good reason for it. Most <laughs> stories, most films, I think. Like if you know, ninety minutes is more than enough, really, for, for a lot of films. <laughs> yeah. That's why I haven't gone to, gone to the cinema to see most of the um, new Marvel superhero yeah. films because it's like two two and a half hours long. I was like, come on, bro, man, it's uh, yes. it's not it's not really long. Do you know what I mean? It's not really long yeah. to to make um, a film long. But I think with Stalker, you wouldn't the experience wouldn't be the same if yeah. yet cut down some of those shots um but um one of my favorite shots in the film is when they're they're crawling through the tunnel and those um sand dunes appear yes. and i was just like, oh what the, what's going on there <laughs> it's just a yeah. very beautiful stark shock uh shot um and you know one of the you know it's one of the uh, sequences in the film where you actually get a, a firm sense that there is something dangerous that might befall the yes. um before before our party yeah 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 totally agree i i mean i love this this the set design and the photography in this film so much it the way i describe it is that the whole film makes me feel like i'm watching a dream like one of my dreams and it's not a dream like not a not a sleeping dream, not something that I will have experienced while I was asleep, but almost like a daydream, or I like to say it like a genetic dream, like a dream of that that is embedded in me, as opposed to something I will have actually experienced at some point. And there are certain scenes in it that really make me feel like that, like the one exactly you mentioned where they finish crawling through the tunnel and they enter in that that room that has all these little sand dunes. There's something so primal about it. it like you say, it makes you feel like, much like a dream, sometimes you can have an anxiety dream, like a dream where if you were just experiencing it normally, it would you would not feel anxiety. But because it's a dream and because there's some something in it that makes you feel anxious, you really do. And this film really does that in, in, a, in a very, very good way. It, it's like experiencing your, your own anxiety dream that you've never actually really experienced before. Yeah. Um, um. So I mean, if there if there is one criticism I do, well, one of the criticisms I do have the movie was that, mm. um, in regard to the dangers that the party face, I did feel sometimes it was a little bit more um, tell than show. I would have liked them to show the potential dangers a little bit more. I think there's only one sequence in the movie where they show. Um, the skeletal remains of um, two, mm. um, two, two other venturers into into the zone, and they're they're in the embrace. And I would have liked to seen a little bit more of that. We have to take a mm -hmm. lot of faith. Um, not only the um, potential value of the room, but the actual potential dangers of the zone as well. We know there's kind of they, they they've got this sequence at the start of the movie where they have to kind of get past um this this barracks of soldiers but aside from that once you're actually into the zone it's kind of you know what what are the dangers there i would have liked to have that had been shown a little bit more by by the filmmakers but hmm. i don't know what you think about that uh, i i hear what you're saying i 
I don't think that the film is about the zone at all. I don't think the film is about yes. danger in is not not danger in a literal immediate sense, not danger in the like somebody walking up to you and punching you in the nose sense. It's about it's about the anxiety of being human and everything that goes along with that. So all of the self-doubt and the the you know self-hatred and anxiety and and all of these things that's really what the film is about and if they introduce something that was a like a really immediate danger it would take you out of that it would mm. remind you that the outside world is dangerous when this movie is not about that it's about the inside world being dangerous it's about the horrible things we do to ourselves and 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 so for that reason the only time you ever really experience anything that hints at danger like you say there's uh, one tiny little bit where there's a two sort of skeletonized bodies in an embrace that in this little corridor you see there are the rusted out tanks in a field that you see. So there was clearly a battle at some point. Um, and uh, right near the ends, they kind of have a bit of a fist fight. Right. And I won't say why. Oh, yeah, I, think I won't say why. Generous to call it a fist fight, but yeah. Yes. But there's a, there's a fist fight in the sense that, yeah, and you're yeah. fighting over something that's very dangerous. And, and in, in each of these circumstances, it's only a sort of hint of danger. I think that the real, uh, what the filmmaker, what Tarkovsky is trying to communicate in this instance is that the real dangers in life come from yourself, you know? Uh, in, in America, it's Americans are very famous. I'm not American, by the way. I'd mentioned that, but in America, there's, you know, one of their sort of um, one of the defining features of being American is the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. You know, every American, not every American, many Americans take it very seriously that they should be able to own weapons, right? And uh, but what they don't say is, and and of course, there's lots of statistics about people dying from gunshot wounds and all of that. But what they don't mention is that far and away, the leading killer from guns is suicide. Way more than the homicide. Way more. Way more than almost all of the other types of death by weapon, by firearm combined. It's suicide. And and so this gun, has, the, the, the firearm, the pistol has this sort of uh, reverence in American society, and what they don't really don't realize is when a person walks into a shop to buy a gun, they're far more likely to use that gun on themselves than they ever are to use it on another human being. Uh, and and so, in this instance, the gun is not the dangerous thing; it's the person who's purchasing the gun. They are the the internal struggle that person experiences. That is the danger, and I think this film as well. If it had more overt signs of danger, of, of violence, it would take away from, from, in my opinion, where the real struggle lies. But I take your point. I yes. think it's an interesting, interesting place to discuss it, for sure. Yeah. Um, so just a couple of other things I want to discuss before I let you go. Um, I, I felt that the dialogue in this film was really really good um all the character so this is very much a character piece it's not action driven it's not really plot driven um and i just wanted to sort of you know pick your brains a little bit about you know you mentioned that each of the characters are kind of you know following an uh an archetype and you know 
there's a lot of discussions between the, the professor and the writer about kind of, you know, what is the nature of each of one of their truths. And mm-hmm. I've, 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 you know, I just um, wanted to kind of get your get your take on that in terms of the dialogue between the professor and the, the writer about the value of each one of their works and kind of their their take on what the what the truth is. Yeah, it's and remember we have to frame all of this discussion in Soviet Russia, right? So yeah. for us, a scientific professor and a writer means something very different. Um, they but to the you know 1979 Soviet person who is going to be watching this movie, and that is who this movie is made for as well. Tarkovsky made his films in the Soviet Union for Soviet audiences. And it should be pointed out that the the state hated this movie when it came out. Uh, they he argued long with them about whether or not it should even be released. And I just also like to say one thing before we leave this discussion on this picture is that, and I think it's as integral to the picture itself is that this movie was actually made twice. And the one we're watching is the second one. They shot the entire movie, shot for shot, in ex- exactly what we have seen in this movie, you and I, just now. Um, they shot the entire thing in the, all the locations with the dialogue, same actors. And uh, they took the film to be processed and discovered that the, the person who was handling it had basically messed up the timing on the celluloid. And the entire thing was unusable. 100% of the movie was unusable. And Tarkovsky had already spent all of the money on the film to film it the first time. And he had to go back to the state and say, look, we've had a problem. And he had to, he and his entire production team and the actors had to shoot the, the whole film again, the second time from beginning to end. And what we are wow. seeing in the second movie. Yeah, yeah. it's a crazy yeah. story. Like, it, I mean, you know how much time and effort and money goes into making a film. So imagine like they go out and shoot the next Avengers movie and then get back to the studio after shooting the entire thing ready for post-processing and discover that they've overwritten all of the, 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 the drives, the hard drives in which it's stored. Like that would be kind of the same sort of thing. So, um, so bearing that, all that in mind and, and how this, this picture is now we are watching it in the 21st century. Um, I think, uh, we need to remember that the characters here are not driven by any kind of desire that like you and I would. You and I are driven by desires, a number of things, but we're driven to succeed, in the, of course, in what we want to do. But part of that is also to, not, to make enough money to survive. Part of it is, uh, you know, we want to be accepted by our communities. All of these types of things, these, all of these, these drive us. They are our personal truths. In the Soviet Union, it's a little bit different, and I don't claim to be an expert on this, so please don't take it like I'm speaking from a place of, of uh, you know, uh, authority here. But the Soviet Union, it's, it's much more about um, your, your place in the state. You know, the state exists, and, and every position in your country is in some way informed by, that, by the state. You cannot exist with, in, in, in a place that is outside of the state's influence. Just It doesn't exist. So you have the professor who has colleagues and who has a place in his university where he teaches, but that is, again, all funded by the state. And then you have the writer, and, and the writer is, I think, maybe you could say is a proxy for the filmmaker. 
everything he delivers as a writer must be approved by the state before it's published. There's no opportunity for him to write a book or a poem that is not then reviewed by a censor board and then delivered to the, to the public. Um, Finally, you have the stalker who exists as much as any of them outside of the state. He is, you know, it's clear he spent time in prison before now. He does what he does, but is not, he, is, he is not welcomed by the state whatsoever. Um, so each of these three individuals has a level of interaction with, them, with each other that would, would and could only really be understood by somebody who lives in the 1970s in the Soviet Union. For the rest of us, we have to interpret what their desires are. And, and I think you hit the nail on the head, and it's for truth. Each of them is looking for truth. They don't really know what they are looking to find, but they are looking for it. And if I can say, so the one, one place in which I'll ruin the movie, but I think it's an integral to understanding the film, is there's a, there's a character in the movie dis, that is, dis, um, is never seen, but is uh, talked about in, uh, in, by the characters there. And his name is Porcupine. And this character, Porcupine, has been to the zone before these guys, and in fact was a stalker before this stalker. Um, and he uh, is discussed, he's referred to by the three of them, and uh, it's clear that he committed suicide before this, all of this uh, is taking place in the film. And there is a, it's, it, by the end of the film, it is clearly said why he, he, uh, he committed suicide. And it's because he, as a stalker, took a lot of people to, the, uh, to this room. And then eventually his brother died. And he went to the room himself, Porcupine did, decided he was going to go himself. And he went there. And if the idea that his wish, his you know, ultimate wish that the room was going to deliver to him was for him to be able to get his brother back. But he, when he goes to the room and he visits the room and leaves, what happens to him is he wins a bunch of money. And he can no longer deal with the fact that when uh, his own opinion of himself changes, he thought his innermost wish was for, was for his brother to be returned to life. But when it came down to it, there, he experienced the room, and the room gave him his innermost desire, and that desire was to be rich, not for his brother to be alive. And he couldn't deal with that. He couldn't, uh, he couldn't process the fact that his innermost desire was something so banal, something so pedestrian. And so he, he took his own life. So the other three characters that we actually see in this movie – they're all looking for their own truths. And by the end of the movie, they have, through their discussions with each other, in this kind of very archetypal way, the writer talks about writing and the professor talks about physics, but then they, they also talk about each other's disciplines. So the writer talks about physics and the, and the physics professor talks about writing, and they talk across each other, and there's a lot of misunderstanding about what each other does. And... By the end of the movie, they are questioning their own ability to exercise decisions in their areas. And so by the end, the writer and the professor are sitting in front of that room, and you can see the doubt in their face. They, they're not sure that they even want to enter the room anymore because they really don't know what they're going to find. So it's not important that we talk about these people in terms of people, individuals, because I don't think they are people. They're, they are archetypes. What, you know, what does a writer really want? What does a professor really want? We don't know. And, but 
you know, as an individual, maybe you don't even know either. I, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think yes. that fundamentally what the movie is about, it's about an examination of the, of, of a, a, you know, a person's innermost desire and, and how sometimes that's the most frightening thing available to you. And if that were, if you were to actually realize your innermost desire, it would be uh, horror, pure horror to you. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's really well, well put. So we've been going for about an hour. So um, let's begin to wrap up. Um, so I think, it's not my, my opinion on stalk. I think it's definitely a worthwhile film going into to watch it. So, you know, if you do get the opportunity to watch it, please do. I, I might not recommend UK Chili's version of it because it does sound like I had you know I might have streamed a, a duff version with um with some sound issues to it but it's definitely a film that you should try to uh watch if you can. I'm not too sure I'm not too sure if I can say it was enjoyable but it's definitely it's definitely one that um makes you think. Um so we're recording this Monday 13th of April 2020 for those of you listeners uh, listening back to this, we're in the middle of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Jeff, how are you coping with self-isolation and all that jam? I'm missing you to get to that mad. I was just wondering how you're coping with all that good stuff. Uh, the bad yeah, stuff. It, yeah, it's tough. I um, So I've been... The way I've coped with it is right at the beginning, um, because I, you know, as you know, Fred, I teach BJJ pretty much full time now, or at least I did before the pandemic. Um, it was my source of income, but it was what kept me busy. And so, uh, you and you run uh, one of the one of my sister clubs in North London, and we kind of got ahead of the curve a little bit, and we cancelled all of our classes even before the government said you had to close all the gyms. We were even well like a week before that, so we have yeah. been without our outlet for what like six weeks now seven weeks but has it been that long yes yeah yeah i think so and so um and that's a long time so right at the very beginning it meant i uh because i had nothing to do i uh, decided i was going to try and fill my days with something at least relatively productive and so i i started volunteering at the hackney food bank and i've been working there pretty much full time since and i I'm really glad that I did that, not only because it gives me something to do, but because it gave me a window into the uh, fact that I'm now aware that that people are actually really generous. There are we we tend to focus on the bad people, the uh, uh, you know the politicians and all of that, the, the the people that we dislike a lot. We focus on them, but there are actually a relatively small percentage of the population. The vast majority of people are very generous, not only with their time but with their money. Uh, I can say that having worked at the food bank, we get people every single day coming in and saying, here, I'm going to donate this. I don't have a lot, but I'll donate what I can, and I just wish I could do more. And that goes right across all age groups, denominations, uh, people of all different kinds of backgrounds, you know. So that's kind of what I've taken from it. It's, it's, buoyed, my, it's buoyed me quite a bit. It makes me feel quite good about the future. That's, that's great. And are there any books or films or albums you think people should check out while we're in this period of self-isolation yeah you know one of my favorite 
one of my favorite albums uh, that I listen to when I need something maybe to meditate to or just to help me kind of feel a little bit less anxious about things is uh, um, uh, Eric Satie. He's a, he's a composer. Um, he was a composer. And he wrote a, uh, he wrote a, uh, a suite of uh, it's a, it's, um, sort of modern classical music. And I'll give you the full. Uh, give you the full. It's uh, gymnopedie, so uh, G Y M N O P E D I E S, and nocien, G N O S S I N N E S. If you just type in Eric Satie, E R I K S A T I E, you'll get this uh, this this album. It's about an hour long. All of his work is really good, but this in particular has. Uh, a quality of allowing you to relax that I've never really felt with another composition. And it's just really, uh, yeah, I just really love it. Eric Satie. Okay. That's, that's great, dude. Um, so we'll wrap up here. Uh, one thing you want to say, guys, stay the fuck at home. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's it. Um, I'm probably going to be recording another two episodes about films. And then I'll kind of want the next season to be, um on something else and i'm probably going to be looking at uh talarand again and try and do three or four episodes about him okay guys uh that's it thanks jeff it's a lot fad <laughs>